I'm going to set the tone by kind of exploring theologically a little bit this idea of flourishing, because I really think, we really think that this is what God has for us. Let's, so let's start, uh, let's jump into this by, with, with some prayer. Lord, would you bring to mind things from the past year that you've started that you want to continue in this coming year or these coming years? Lord, would you help us be thankful for everything, Lord, because you are, all things work together for good, you've said, for those of us that love you and are following you. And Lord, we want to take that seriously. So as we're here in your presence, God, we ask that you would move in every heart, that you would do something authentic in our midst today as we share and project for the future and in a spirit of rejoicing and worship, we just anxiously look ahead. Thank you for what's behind us. We're excited to be able to let go of the things, the successes and the failures that were behind and press forward, as Paul said, to the goal that's before us. Show us what that goal is, Lord, and I pray that you'd help me to articulate this and show this in your, in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, so um, we are, we'll be passing the mic off to different leaders. It might be a little bit choppy. We've got PowerPoints and slides and stuff like that that we've got to get all going. But I think that God wants us to flourish. And here's what I mean by that. What I, well, what I don't mean, when I usually say the word flourish, when it comes to a church context, which usually comes to mind as like a thriving church teeming with people, that every seat is used, that, you know, we've got people in the balconies and there's this explosion going on here in our church of health and life when it comes to numerics and those types of things, which is good. I mean, gosh, amen, may it be so. That'd be great. But I actually think that's a pretty limited view of the idea of flourishing, um, the way, the, the way of thinking like that, there's actually a premise behind that in the way we think about what church actually is. That way of seeing things sees the church more of an institution that needs people and bodies to man its plans and its vision for the programs that we have. So in a format like that, I would show up and say, here's the programs we're going to have, here's the format we're going to have as a church this year, and we need you to sign up and get involved or it won't work, that type of an idea. But I don't really, biblically, I think, church, I think biblically, the, the Bible's idea of church is that church is made up of people, you and me, who are following Jesus in our everyday lives, not just through programs and things like that, although those can be good. I think you're already following Jesus. I think the church goes out from here. The church is not just a Sunday morning gathering. When we gather, the church becomes a, a community, a local community, and there's churches meeting all over, of course, the world. But Fundamentally, we are part of a capital C church, those of us that are following Jesus, and God has got things going on in your own life. He wants you to grow. We are all following Jesus together, and and we are, in particular, in this location. And in this model, it's the job of the church, the local gathering, to support and equip one another in what God has already got going on in your life. Do you see the difference between that? So we're trying to conduct ourselves in such a way as to support 
one another's growth, one another's flourishing. Uh, one model sees the church as kind of, well, they're the professionals that kind of make a meal for us on Sundays and we show up and consume it, right? That's one thing. And it's kind of, unfortunately, it can be discon disconnected from the rest of our lives, right? It can kind of be discombobulated and disconnected. Or we can say, no, God is doing something. We're empowered as his, as his followers and we as a community want to invest in each other and help each other flourish. The first view of church sees the church um, consumeristically. But the other view, the other way of viewing church, sees it as a community of local Jesus followers who are following Jesus together as a team, supporting each other in how we raise our kids, how we represent him at our jobs, how we love and serve our neighbors, how we handle conflict and criticism. It's connected to every part of our lives. And in this model, we all have a part to play in each other's lives as discipleship. We're empowered and expected to be involved in each other's lives. And leaders, the leaders of the church, um, who are following Jesus too, it's our job to facilitate, to equip, and set an example for what following Jesus looks like. Leaders, essentially, the elder board, our leadership teams, we say, follow us as we follow Christ. We are imperfect, starting with me. I've got more issues than a newsstand. I promise you that. We are imperfect, and yet we are genuinely following Jesus follow us. So when the Bible talks about flourishing, I don't think it means, you know, this idea of, I go to a church that's thriving. And what we usually mean by that is that, you know, we have certain things in our minds. It's thriving, it's got a lot of people coming, and it's popular. That might be what we mean. But I don't think that's what it means. Let me show you what I think it means, what it means to flourish. Um, maybe I should have done the headset. Go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be. Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day, and God said, let there be. Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the waters from the waters. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You can do this. This program is so powerful. You sneeze on it, and it says, oh, I'll do that. Let's see, how would I, how would I do that? Is it over here? Technology, man, I'm just, it's just not my thing. Here we go. So God made the expanse and separated the waters under the expanse from the waters above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. And God called uh, the dry ground land, and the, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed, in, 
bear seed in it according to their very various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plant-bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seeds and according to their kinds. And God saw that it was so, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give them light on the earth. To govern the day and the night. And to separate light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water, here's a big word for us this morning, let the water teem. Let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, livestock, creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Okay, um, I just want to point out one thing and riff on it a little bit in this passage because it's pertinent to what it means to flourish. Notice that God chose to start his creative power with the words, let it be. That's how creativity and creation started. Let it be. And interestingly enough, Hebraists and um, grammarians will tell us that these words are in the what's called the the jussive tense in the Hebrew language, which is why that's interesting is because it's not a direct imperative. It's not a command. Actually, the, the words spoken in the jussive tense are in fact simultaneously more powerful and yet less controlling at the same time. Isn't that interesting? More powerful and, and less controlling. When we think of power, because this, this is riddled with power language, this whole passage, the whole Bible, really, is littered with power language. When we think of power, we usually think of the imperative mood. Go do that. Stand at attention. Do this type of a thing. But here, that's not what this is. This is actually a command. It is a command that brings freedom. It's a command that brings um, autonomy and freedom in a lot of ways. When the words, let there be, are uttered by God, and those words ring through the universe, they accomplish very literally what they describe. Let there be, in other words, let there be being itself. This is the create, this is the, what we're seeing here in Genesis 1 is the creation of being where there was no being before. Beings come into existence each with their own capability, notice, and their own potential and their own sphere of influence. In other words, God does not create perfect pairs. He creates them and then lets them team, lets them go, 
lets them fill. He gives them the power, be fruitful and multiply. It's not like an you know, industrial factory where God is just producing Teslas and sending them out or producing people and just sending them out. He makes people and he gives them power. Now you be creative. You be, he, zebras, now you be creative. Whales, now you be creative. And, it, and the world starts to, our word is, team. Another, world, another word for team is flourish. Beings come into existence. In other words, let there be, that phrase, let there be, not only creates, but it also bequeaths power to, the other, to others to be creative. It makes room for more and more being. That's the beauty of it. So by saying, let there be, the creator God makes room for more being, for more agents who could utter their own let there be. Does that make sense? He's making beings that can utter their own let there be. We can be creative ourselves, especially when it comes down to us. And on the successive days of the Genesis story, those empowered creatures, we just read, those empowered creatures will, will yield seed, they will bear fruit, they will rule the day and the night, they will fly, they'll be fruitful, they will multiply, they will creep, they will crawl, and they will fill the earth. See what's starting to happen? Notice what happen, what's happens in verse 20 through 23. Look up here. Let me read it again. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures. In other words, he just, go for it. It's the language of abundance. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and increase in number more. So right away we find something in the heart of God this goes right to the character of God. God is the God that says more, creative, abundance, flourish. He's not the God that says, no, don't do that. Stop it. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't gosh, restrain yourself a little bit. That's not him. He's the God in the beginning. The world is teeming with good things. And he says, more, more, create more. And now I'm going to empower you to say, let there be. Let there be. Imagine and make it come to be. Make it come to pass. That's the God that is from the first page of the Bible. He's a God that likes abundance, flourishing, health, life from the very first page. Other translations use the word teeming for the animals of Genesis' fifth day to say abundance or to flourish. This is another word, it basically means, I looked it up, it means incalculable and inestimable abundance. That's what it means, teeming. Incalculable and inestimable abundance. Swarming and teeming are part of what makes the world good. Swarming and teeming. And then, significantly, look what happens. Down here in 26, here's where you and I come in. The mood changes. It becomes extremely personal. The word, the, in fact, the tense in the Hebrew changes. Then God said, Instead of let there be, let us make man in our likeness, in our image, in our likeness. And let him, here's a power word for you, rule. Let them rule over the fish of, oh, dadgummit. I just need, I need, 
In 2023, I'm going to become more techie. That's my promise. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Whereas the rest of creation is brought into being by the jussive, let it be, On the sixth day, God speaks unexpectedly in the plural in what the Hebraists call cohortive. The cohortive tense, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. In other words, in the creation of mankind, in the creation of you and me, now God gets personally involved. He gets personally invested. This is no distant sovereign decree. That's not what this is. It's intensely personal. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. God basically is crowning creation. That's what the sixth day is all about. That's what you are. You're a crown. He's crowning creation with his image bearers who will themselves be invited to share in their maker's fruitful dominion over creation so that it will continue to flourish. What does he tell them to do? He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Those are powerful words. Subdue, dominion, rule, have dominion over these things. And the idea is, so that things continue to flourish. So that more abundance comes. You are my image bearers. The word um, in the Hebrew is the word selim. And it simply means to carve a statue of yourself and place it somewhere. Kings used to do this. They would make statues of themselves and they would place it all over their kingdom. So when you were traveling through, you could go, oh, this land belongs to King so-and-so. You just knew whose it was. You see what God is saying? He's saying, I'm making images of myself that will rightly represent me. And I'm telling them to go out and Claim my kingdom over the whole world, bringing abundance and rule and have dominion in such a way that it will represent rightly who I am in the earth. That's the idea here. That's what it means to be human. It's, you are made for glory. You're a glorious representation of, of the king, wherever your footsteps. And how do people know? You bring creativity. You bring your power to bear on your environment, your family, your work, wherever you are, you bring your power to bear on that environment and it causes more. Flourish, abundance, goodness, problems are solved, relationships are healed. More abundance starts to happen. Don't we need that? More of that, more flourishing. That's what he's called us to. It's, it's in, it, it's in your, it's, this is the fire in which you were forged. This is in your DNA. You weren't, we, the message for us as a church is not that in 2023 slash 24, wherever, that we were called to survive in Seattle. No, we were called to thrive in Seattle. And we're, you are called to bring your power to bear on 
your family, yourself, and Seattle so that it flourishes, so that it's blessed. And it starts with you. The words dominion and subdue are, are very powerful words. We don't like the idea of power in our culture. Lord, um, who is it? Lord, Lord Adden? I can't remember his name. He coined the phrase, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. <clears throat> and we tend to be, we tend to take that parable or take that saying in our culture and, and we really are leery of anybody with authority, anybody with power. Well, the Bible would push back on that. The Bible, the Bible would say that actually you were made for power. Power, in fact, here's the equation that we're going to go with, with today. And hopefully, and I hope this sticks in your mind. Power was made for image bearers, and image bearers were made for flourishing. That's the pattern that we see in Genesis 1. Power is for image bearing, image bearing is to flourish, is for flourishing. We have power. Um, And yes, it can become corrupt, and we'll get into that. Absolutely. It can be misused. Absolutely. But at the very beginning, God blesses power, and he gives us power so that we can flourish and be blessed, and oh, thank you, and from that blessing, we can bless the world around us. So what this is not is a name it and claim it prosperity thing that I'm telling you. I'm not saying, and nor is the Bible saying, 2023, you are going to drive your dream car. Just name it. Because you're going to flourish. <laughs> That's not what it's saying. It's saying we are blessed. We've been given a certain amount of power so that we can pour it out and cause blessing to other people. We have a lot of power in this room. These image bearers will become the kind of persons who can, who can themselves say, let there be. And then at some point together, we can say, let us make. We get to imitate our maker. You have the power to imagine and say, let there be. And with your families and with us as a church, we could say, let us make. We can be creative. Let us do something here. This is not the myopic or self-centered kind of power that is, that is infused in the prosperity gospel that is, is heresy. This is saying that we are blessed so that we can represent God to the world. We have the power to flourish so that everything and everyone around us can flourish. We are to steward our power in such a way as to image God rightly to all of creation. And God is the God of the yes. In the New Testament, do you remember that verse in the New Testament? I wish I knew where it was, but it says, in him all things, all the promises of God are yes and amen. It's not in God, all the promises of him are, hey, don't get carried away. If you're lucky, maybe a little bit, but let's be realistic. God has a heart that says, yes, what are you dreaming? What is you dreaming about? What would you say right now would be your let there be for 2023 and 2024? Let there be. In the context of flourishing and blessing others, what would your life look like so that you could give it away and make the world a better place? God says, yes, yes, let's move towards that. Let's work towards that. Let's go that direction. So, on the first page of the Bible, we see that power is for flourishing, teeming, 
fruitfulness, multiplication, abundance, and image-bearing is for power so that we can flourish and be agents of flourishing as we joyfully cultivate the world. That's what God wants for us. That's what he wants. So what's stopping us? What's stopping us? Well, let me put this down. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? Uh, So you know the story. Is the power that God gave mankind even before the fall, was it limited or unlimited? Say limited. It was limited power. He put boundaries on it, right? Of all the trees in the garden you can eat except that one. It was limited power. So, the serpent says, the woman said to the serpent, we may, we may eat from the trees of the, in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat the fruit from that tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And what does he say? You're not going to die. You won't die. And the serpent said to the woman, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You'll have unlimited power. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, sin is the tendency, according to this model, sin is the tendency to use our power to image self to try to exalt ourselves to deity. It is the prosperity doctrine. (laughs) Sin is saying, I'm going to use my power to take. Sin sees power the way Nietzsche saw power. Uh, uh, Nietzsche described power as like a limited substance that needs to be grabbed. There's only so much of it, and whoever can get it is the one who gets the most of it. So Nietzsche described power, uh, human beings, as he defined life as a struggle for power. If there's space and there's only two of us, Nietzsche would say we're going to start wrestling to who gets most of that space. If there's more than two of us, if there's three or four of us, the strong ones are going to make alliances and unite and overcome the weak ones and take up more of that limited space. It was a zero-sum game. There's only so much of it, and I've got to take it. It's, a, it's an idea of scarcity, not abundance and more and, and creativity. It's actually a, a scarcity model. Um, you know, this is, this is kind of economic in a lot of ways. If I, were to, if I were to give Scott five bucks, he would be richer by the exact amount that I would become poorer, right? But... If I was to teach Scott to play the piano, I would be giving him something that I would not be losing. I don't lose my knowledge to play the more that I give to him. I'm actually increasing power. I'm increasing flourishing. Now Scott can go and play the piano, and as he keeps practicing, it increases more and more every day. Abundance, that's the Bible's view of power. We have something that we can give that just causes more power and more flourishing redeems, heals, all those types of things. 
But when we, the enemy here in chapter 3 gets Adam and Eve to look at this power, power something that's limited and needs to be grabbed. God's hoarding it. He knows you. He doesn't want you to have all of it. And if you eat this fruit, you can, you can gain that space. You can have it. And that, my friends, is the model that the Bible gives us for sin. Therefore, we tend to hoard. We amass power. We commit great acts of injustice, especially when we play God. Playing God in the Bible or create, make, making other images, playing God in the Bible is known as idolatry. And in the Bible, you can, you can trace it yourself. It's a, it's a, these are two twin things that are never separated. In the Bible, and I'll, be, I'll make huge words here because it's true, whenever there is idolatry, there is always injustice. Whenever there is idolatry, there's always injustice. The money lender in India a poor family comes to him or her and says, we need an amount of money to get out of poverty. And the money lender gives them a loan that he or she knows they cannot pay back. In fact, they're hoping they won't be able to pay it back. And as that family struggles to pay, make their payments and they can't do it, they start sending people over to the house making threats, telling them they have to work longer hours. And then, this is true, this happens today. This is happening today. They go and they say, hey, your six-year-old daughter, she can make some money. Let's go put her to work. And what about your son? What's going on? Playing God, power is mine, and I'm going to become... I'm going to get more of it, and I'm going to extract from those who are weak. The, the, more, the power becomes more powerful, and the weak become more weak. That's idolatry, and that's injustice. It was, the, it was the prophet's main beef against Israel, especially prophets like Micah. Micah was prophesying in Israel when it was a time of prosperity. And he said, you've made your wealth by siphoning off the poor and the weak. You've used your power, he's talking to the leaders and the prophets, You've used your power to take rather than use it to flourish and give. And ironically, we end up hurting ourselves in the process. It's a way of stymieing and stunting flourishing. How can we image God then? Well, Jesus came, and what was Jesus? Let me show you this. Let me show you this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the ultimate image bearer. The word image in the Greek is the word eichion. It's where we get our word icon. It's, the, it's an icon of, of, of a truth, of the truth of the universe. It's saying this is what God is like. He did what we could not do. And what did Jesus do when he showed up? Yeah, there it is. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. What is that? What language is that? He flourished. He flourished. In the midst of great oppression, in the, in the midst of great injustice, in the, in the midst of hardship, Jesus came and through suffering flourished in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And then he proceeded through his life to pour out that blessing 
on mankind, especially on the cross. Being the very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be hoarded, amassed, protected. But he made himself nothing. He poured it out. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. And because of that, therefore, God exalted him. He flourished to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, and, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Do you see the model there? Jesus had phenomenal cosmic power, and he gave it. He didn't see it as something that'd be hoarded, like a zero-sum game. He knew the more I give, the more life it will bring. And Jesus shows up, and what happens? People all around him begin to flourish. He's just the perfect human. He's doing what you and I were meant to do throughout his life. People are being healed. The blind are seeing. The deaf hear. Relationships are being restored. Everywhere he goes, just flourishing begins to happen because he's this image. He's imaging God rightly. He's the icon, the icon of God himself. He's doing what you and I were meant to do but failed to do. That's the idea. He's doing what you and I were meant to do, the fire in which we were forged, and yet we failed to do, and Jesus comes and does it for us, and then he takes our sin and our mistakes and pours himself out on the cross so that we can become the images of God. Let me show you a good one here. I didn't write this stuff down. This is all, hopefully my brain works. it and we who with un yeah it is we who with unfailed faces all reflect the lord's glory were being transformed into his likeness in ever increasing glory which comes from the lord who is the spirit likeness is the word ihion same word we're being transformed into his likeness. That is what's going on in 2023. The more we follow Jesus together, the more we do it, and it's got to be together, and it's got to be supporting one another. The more we do this together, the more we are being transformed into his likeness. How? Well, through participation with him. We've got to, you have a part to play. You can accelerate your growth into God's image, into his likeness, and your flourishing and power over others, or you can stunt that growth the more you try to play God or worship other things. Your hand is very much on the throttle. Let me prove it to you. I should have wore that headset. Sorry, I didn't know I was going to be doing all this. First Corinthians 10... Is not the cup of thanksgiving, that's what we're going to do at the end, of the end of the day, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, look at this word, can you guys say it? A what? Participation in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, what we're taking here today is signifying that we are living a life 
of, like Jesus. That's what that means. This is a, um, every time we take communion together, we're re-upping. We're saying, I'm going to follow Jesus again as, as my lifestyle. My life is defined by pouring myself out, giving my power away, knowing that it will bring life. Let me give you another one. For through, this is a famous Paul saying, through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ is living in me. Now, let me break it down. The life I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm living a life of cruciformity. I've been crucified in my, I'm, in my flesh. I'm I'm limiting my power. I'm giving myself away. I'm pouring myself out, even unto death, knowing that it will, it will bring life. And finally, back in, in uh, Philippians, let's see if I can do this. Look at this. I'm getting more techie, you guys. Other translations say, let this mind be in you as it was in Christ Jesus. In other words, think this way who being the very nature of God, you have power, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a, tr- of a servant, being made in the likeness of God. What does, it, what does a life of, uh, of following Jesus look like? Well, one of the remarkable things about Jesus of Nazareth is the abundance of evidence that we have um, of his spiritual rhythms, that his power came from living and doing certain things repeatedly. On repeat. From childhood on, Jesus' life was built around weekly observances, annual things, Sabbaths, prayer, solitude. The Gospels report that he would regularly rise before dawn and go pray. This wasn't just something that was like, it's good to do. This was how he could show up with the enormous amount of moral presence and moral authority that he had that would change a room. He would spend time with God. Before his public ministry began, he spent 40 days in none other than solitude and silence, fasting and wrestling. So this year, what I'm hoping that we do, well, first of all, before we do that, close your eyes, take a moment. I want to speak to your mind. I want to, I want to invoke your imagination. What kind of power do you have? Don't shy away from this. Don't think you're being proud. Sociologists will tell us that the most dangerous kind of power is what they call unmapped power. And that means people that have power and they don't know it or people that have power and refuse to use it. So step number one, it's very important that you inventory what kind of power do you have. Some of you have um, talent. Some of you have an education. Some of you know things. Some of you are experts in things. Some of you have uh, an amount of finances and and, um, wealth. Some of you have influence. You're just natural leaders. Some of you are good at making decisions. Some of you are good at strategy. Some of you love to problem solve. Some of you are people, people persons. You just love encouraging and being around other people. 
These are, this is all your bank of power for you to flourish with. These are seeds of your 2023-24 flourishing. And this is what we want to help you develop over the next, this is what we want to help each other develop over the next few years. How can God use that? And a, a slightly more uncomfortable question for you. Eyes still closed. How have you misused it? How are you using your power as a zero-sum game? You feel threatened and you feel like you got to keep it or you feel like you got to take it from others? You got to control. This is a, uh, you know, in marriages, Nicole and I were just talking about this last night. We get in a rut where we try to control each other, try to control what each other think and say. We're limiting each other rather than offering space and flourishing and freedom. How can you repent of the ways that you've been using your power for ill? Maybe perhaps because you don't think of yourself as a powerful person, but you are. You are. 